Welcome to The Business of Romance, the podcast that helps you turn your passion for romance novels into profits. I'm your host, May, also known as the Romance Fiction Queen, and I'll be joining you here each week to serve up my industry expertise and insights from this lucrative world of writing and self-publishing romance novels. Listen in for practical tips and strategies on writing to market, mastering self-publishing, and becoming the ultimate romance fiction queen. Let's get started. Okay, so today's episode is going to be a little different because it's story time. So settle in and relax. And while I will be marking this episode as explicit, I'll go ahead and give a reminder here and now that this is not a story for little ears. This is grown-up story time. So you've all been warned. Let's dive in. I live in a small town. And like most small towns, there's next to nothing to do here. But there is a very overrated town square. It looks like something out of a movie. It has the old brick buildings, the little shops and cafes with cheesy names, and they're laid out in a square right in the center of town. Town square, literally. So really, to me now, I love the square. We have our farmer's market, there are little shops where you can buy soaps and embroidered towels and tea. There's a florist where you can buy fresh flowers. And no matter where you go in our town, you know you're going to run into someone you know, which can be both a blessing and a curse. But for me, at the time, as a young single woman, I did not want soaps or embroidered towels, and I didn't want to run into people I knew because I was already painfully aware of the fact that I did not want to date or sleep with anyone in our town. And on this particular night that I'm thinking of, sleeping with someone was all I really wanted. To say I was in a dry spell was the understatement of the century. The first year without sex, I didn't even really have time to think about what I was missing out on. By year two, I thought I was desperate enough to settle for whoever Tinder could conjure up for me, but quickly I found I wasn't that desperate just yet. But by this point, I was in year three and starting to think that maybe I finally was that desperate. It's a law of the universe that says if you're a hot guy with any chance at being successful and happy in life, you immediately move the hell out of this town the first chance you get. But for some reason, if you're a hot girl with any chance at being successful and happy in life, this place is like quicksand. You get sucked right in and it's like you can never leave. And you end up stuck on a Friday night going to the same old place to meet the same old people. And you know with certainty that you won't want to sleep with a single one of them. It's not such a great time for a young woman with a healthy sex drive. So one Friday night, I find myself resigning to the only option available to me, which was to go to one of six bars that exist in my town. So for a town this size, six is a lot. But I've come to realize drinking is one of the best ways to cope with the reality that is living here under all the circumstances that I've listed previously. So out of the six bars, there is one that is more tolerable than the rest because it has really nice atmosphere, nice furniture, a really fancy bathroom. Like seriously, the bathroom is probably nicer than anything else here. It does not look like it belongs in a place like this. And on that particular night, I like to think I also looked really damn good, that I also looked 
like someone who didn't belong in a place like this. If I didn't already know everyone, I could lie and say I was from out of town or just passing through or something really glamorous and mysterious sounding like that. But instead, when I walk in, it's like an episode of Cheers. Everybody knows my name. Only tonight, it's worse because it is literally everybody. I don't know who opened up the floodgates, but the place is busier than I have ever seen it. It's like the entire population rallied together, dropped their kids off at a community babysitter, and now they're all here in my bar on a night when I really would have preferred sitting in a quiet corner with my friends. I scan the crowd and do see my friends sitting in our usual corner at our usual table, but it's anything but quiet. There's a band setting up next to them, and I instantly regret coming because now, instead of gossiping and talking shit with them to blow off steam, which is something I so desperately need right now, I'm going to go deaf sitting right next to the amps in the drum set, and I'm pretty confident based on ample past experiences that I am not going to enjoy whatever music is playing. Nonetheless, I will myself to make the most of it, grab a drink from the bar, and head over to join my friends at their poor choice of going with our usual table, even though it's right next to the stage. Waiting for me there is my friend Noelle, who is with her new girlfriend, who I don't care for too much. And judging by the way she looks me over when I walk in, I get the impression that feeling is mutual. And then there's Joel, who wishes he had a boyfriend that I could dislike, but sadly does not. And I notice as I sit down that they're all looking at me with these weird smiles on their faces. So I stop for a moment, I wipe my hand across my mouth in case there's foam from my beer lingering on my lip, I turn side to side, I look myself over, I make sure that my tight jeans aren't giving me camel toe, nothing's ripped, I see no stains, so at that point I've had enough and I'm forced to ask, why the hell are you looking at me like that? No one says a word. The only response comes from Noelle in the form of her sliding a flyer across the table. She does it like she's handing me a birthday present. And when I take the flyer into my hand and scan the words on it, more importantly, I scan the picture of the rugged hot guy holding a guitar featured in the picture underneath those words, I rapidly realize she has handed me a present and it's not even my birthday. My heart leaps because that guy Staring back at me from the photo is single-handedly responsible for some of the best sex I've ever had in my entire life. I'm talking all night long, losing yourself completely, multiple orgasms, ruin you for every other man on the planet, mind-blowing kind of sex. And then, in the morning, makes you coffee and scrambled eggs. His name is Cash Lawson. Even his name sounds like sex that's bad for you but is too good to say no to. He's the kind of guy that you don't date because you know he'd break your heart into a million pieces and also because you'd almost feel guilty keeping him all to yourself. You have to sadly set him free and let other women of the world experience this gift too. And considering that after I last saw him, he set off on a tour around the world, becoming semi-famous singing the songs that he wrote in his deep, sexy voice that is somehow like gravel and honey all at once, I have to assume that many, many women have experienced that gift since I last did. And I instantly 
hate them and feel a completely irrational, jealous rage fill me up inside. And it only grows more intense during what transpires over the next few seconds because that man, who is so painfully good looking and effortlessly cool in his ripped up jeans, like the kind that are ripped from being too old and worn too long partying across the country in an indie rock tour, his hair is that perfect mix between being styled and disheveled, his neck has this string of seashells around it now that wasn't there before and I'm dying to know where he got those. More than that, I'm dying to squeeze them while he's on top of me. He walks on stage and I'm filled with so many things at once. Lust that's too strong to take, an overwhelming joy that I can say I have actually been to bed with this sex god more times than I can count, and a deep, deep sadness that I know there's no way it's ever going to happen again. I'm certain he's returning to us as a changed man, right? Like now that he's sampled the hottest, coolest groupies that the country has to offer, there's no way in hell he can come back to me. Like I may be hot on the spectrum of the little town I grew up in, but I'm not like cross country hot. And now Cash knows for a fact that he is. And he's had lots of other cross country hot women in his bed to prove it. That ache is setting in deeper and deeper as he flashes a crooked smirk and scans the room. Then it happens. His eyes land on me. And I expect them to keep going right on past me, but they don't. They freeze on me. They float up and down my body. His eyes grow wide and then soften as his perfect, plump, kissable lips spread into an even bigger grin. His eyes twinkle with a secret that makes my cheeks flash hot and turn bright red. My heart swells with what almost escapes as a teenage girl-style giggle because in that moment, as our eyes lock with a subtle look that's enough to make me have to turn away, I know we're both thinking about the same thing. Those nights and mornings in bed together all those years ago. Noel lets out a howling sound that breaks me from the spell, which is just as well because Cash has to start the show. I reluctantly turn to see her hand is balled up in a fist, pressed up against her open smiling mouth, so I snap at her. What? And she says that, look, damn girl, I knew you two reuniting was going to be hot, but that, that was fire. Like, can someone please turn on a fan or something in here? Sit down and shut up, I growl, shooting her a warning glare. But really, I can't help but smile right along with her. The look was pretty damn hot, even if I know deep down it means nothing. Cash starts to sing, and that aching feeling comes back. I'm glad I got the look. It's validating, and a boost to my ego for sure, but I know it doesn't mean anything. I am left there with my chin perched on the palm of my hand, lost with a dreamy look in my eyes as he serenades us all with his perfect, raspy voice. It feels like I'm melting down out of my chair into a hot puddle at my friend's feet. It goes on for half an hour, maybe more. I kind of lost all sense of time by then, so it's hard to tell. It's beautiful and agonizing. And then lightning strikes again. Cash stops towards the end of his set. His eyes drift over to me. Both of our faces light up in a shared smile, that shared secret creeping back up again. He keeps his glimmering hazel eyes glued on me as he moves closer to the mic and says, This next song, my friends, is for that woman sitting right there in the front row. 
Now, I imagine at that moment, everyone turned and looked at me, but honestly, I wouldn't have known because the second he started singing, every single other person on the face of the planet ceased existing to me. It was just me, him, his buttery voice, and the roller coaster rising and sinking feeling in my heart that made it feel like it was going to pop right out of my chest. By the time it was over, I came floating back down to earth. I came back to my senses and it dawned on me that he was just throwing me a little bone, a little something for the good old days, but I was still not disillusioned enough to think that it was going to be anything more than that. The show ends, him and his band pack up, my friends go on talking, and I try to pretend like I can focus on anything that they're saying. And then at some point in the days of their words that are so completely lost on me because I am now ruined for the night, Cash just appears at our table and just sits down like he belongs there. So he's a true gentleman. He addresses my friends first. He introduces himself to Noelle's shitty girlfriend, who I'm starting to think maybe doesn't dislike anyone, but her face is just kind of like that. And he attempts to introduce himself to Joel, who has to remind him they've already met once before, much to his dismay. He remembers Noelle, of course. But eventually, he turns to me, and I shit you not, says, I look better than ever. I think it was then that I realized from the look in his eyes that this might actually happen. Maybe he's desperate because he's been drinking, so this town is all he's got for tonight, and I am the safest bet in it. Part of me wants to challenge him and give him a run for his money to make him think he might not stand a chance or that it's not going to be so easy for him. But again, I'm in a three-year dry spell. I do manage to get a coy line or two in, but let's face it, I am putty in his hands. I don't stand a chance. So he asks me what I've been up to the past few years and says he's surprised that I'm still around. The mood dims for a minute as I explain, my mother is sick and I've been taking care of her. The sincerity that flashes in his eyes makes me think, damn, he's good. He's really good. He starts telling me all of his stories from being out there on the road and he says it all so casually, like it's no big deal. He's just a normal guy who also happens to be a semi-famous indie rock star home from his last big tour. I didn't notice when my friends left the table or the bar altogether. I definitely didn't notice the whole place clearing out as the hours passed. By the time the bartenders were putting the chairs up onto the tables to sweep and mop, I realized the time had come. The clock was striking 12. Well, closer to 2 in the morning, actually. I snapped to and apologized, dragging my hands down my face, telling him, God, I'm so sorry. I've kept you out so late. He just laughs and says, are you kidding me? I don't start my day until afternoon. This is practically dinner time to me. It shouldn't be so charming and endearing, but it is. And then the worst thing happens. This nagging sense of logic starts creeping in and it starts nudging me to call it a night. Not the kind of night that ends in bed with him, but the kind of night where I go home alone again. Because what I felt earlier was true, whether he realizes it or not. We had our fun back in the day, but I like to think I've grown up a little now. I don't know if I'll ever make it out of this town. 
or if anyone who's right in all the right ways instead of right in all the wrong ways like cash will ever pass through this place and notice me. If maybe that's the turn my seemingly hopeless love life will take one day. But I know I'm not going to find out if I keep falling headfirst into the holes of my past. So I do something I am certain I will regret later and I tell him I have to go. I tell him it's been lovely seeing him and catching up and I attempt to pay my tab, but of course he steps in and pays it for me. Actually, I don't even know if the bartenders were charging him, so maybe it doesn't count, but still, the thought is nice. Before I can go, he locks his eyes onto mine, firmly plants his hands on my shoulders with his body towering over mine, leaving me to wonder if it's still as chiseled as it used to be. He starts to lean down, and my heart pounds so loud it floods my ears and blocks out every other sound. His soft lips press gently against my cheek. When my eyes flutter open and meet his again, I know I have to run or I am done for. I tell him goodnight and wave with an awkward laugh that I wish didn't just come out of my mouth, and I attempt to turn to walk away. Only instead, I manage to run into the one single chair that somehow got left out in the middle of the floor, like the bartenders did it on purpose as some kind of cruel joke, just punishment for us sticking around after closing, my perfect exit ruined. And then to pour salt in my wounds, Cash asks if I'm okay. I answer in a strange chirping sound, trying to wave him off as I make my second attempt to flee before it's really too late. I'm nearly free, but just when my hand reaches for the door, his voice stops me. He calls my name. I slowly spin around to face him again, now from a much safer distance. We're both suspended there for a moment, and his expression is unreadable. Finally, his smooth lips part, and he says, Well, that's the end of the story. Sort of, because it's a writing prompt. I want you to decide, what did he say? I know it's kind of cruel, isn't it? But like, seriously, this is your writing prompt. What line did Cash feed our leading lady next? So this episode is part writing prompt, part lesson on writing craft, more accurately, storytelling craft, because yes, sadly, the tale that I've woven for you here today isn't true. I've spent the first few episodes of this podcast talking about some of the business aspects of the romance novel industry, which are all super important. However, the business strategy ultimately means nothing if you can't deliver a story that readers are craving. So I thought one of the best ways to demonstrate how to create that kind of story was to share one of my own. And then break down for you some of the key things here that make this the kind of story that people want to read. Obviously, the way I've spoken this story out loud to you today is not exactly the same way I would have written it. Because when we say a story out loud, we have to tell it a bit different than how we'd write it. And then there are some time constraints to take into account too. But the nuts and bolts of it are all there and that's what I'm gonna give you a quick rundown of. So make sure you have a pen and paper and can take notes or you can check out the transcript of this through the show notes. There are a few key elements that I incorporated into this story that I'm gonna dive into with you. And the first one is world building with a purpose. So right off the bat, we get immersed into this character's world and we get this description of a square in a small town. 
So this paints a picture. We know exactly where our character is, where the story is unfolding. And even if you've never lived in a small town, you can picture it. If you haven't visited a place like this in person, we've passed through one or we've seen it in a show or a movie or read about it in a book. So we get these visual and sensory and emotional cues like the farmer's market and the little gift shops and the local forest and this idea of being in a small place that you've lived your whole life so everyone knows who you are. And even though we're not taking a bunch of time to spell out every single little detail, we're giving enough so that our readers or our listeners in this case are able to fill in the holes with their own context or references that they already have banked in their minds. But more importantly, this isn't info dump world building like the world building we do at the start of the story serves a purpose because it sets up where our leading lady is on this night in her life and it's not a night where everything is perfect and hunky-dory like immediately we know she's restless and dissatisfied and the world building exists to also help us understand why she feels that way so it's this contrast between how she's feeling on the inside, and the conflict, the walls that are standing in her way, which in this case is her environment. So now she has to have a real reason for why she's stuck in this environment, why she never left the small town she grew up in, even though we get the sense that she's unhappy there. And that revelation brings us to the next key idea here, because it's the moment that comes much later in the story when it's revealed to us through her catching up with Cash that she's a caretaker to her mom who's sick. So that moment tells us a lot because we now have a reason for this character's conflict, which is her being stuck and unhappy in the small town where she grew up and the circumstances in her life that are causing it, which is being a caretaker to her sick mom. But we also, through that, we have another level that we can like and relate to this character on. So she's not just stuck in this town because she's lazy or scared or any other reason. It's a very real, tangible reason. And the fact that she's the kind of person who would put her own dreams and desires on hold to care for her mom tells us she's the kind of person that we admire and that we like and respect and also someone that we genuinely feel bad for, like our heart goes out to her. So it's that relatability and likability factor getting snuck in there. But we're not giving all of that away right off the bat. We're weaving these little things in throughout the story and kind of like, rewarding our reader with more information as they keep reading. So we're setting a lot up here, but everything that we're setting up, it's bringing up more questions that make the reader want to keep going. So we find ourselves asking things like, what does this character do for a living? Like we know she's taking care of her sick mom, but what does that look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Where are things going with Cash? Like, readers know we're not going to introduce him and this night that they may or may not spend together if he's just going to leave town the next day and that's the end of it. Like, that would be a very short book. Something more is going to come out of this, but what and how does it keep going? Why is Cash back and why is he so interested in our main character when she's so convinced of all the reasons he should have for not being into her anymore? 
So what happened between them back in the day? Like, we know that they hooked up a lot, and we know that it was magical. She calls him a sex god. He even made her breakfast in the morning, said that he ruined her for all other men. And we have her, like, surface-level kind of tongue-in-cheek, self-deprecating things, like she knew it was too good to last, or he's the sex god that needed to be shared with the world. But, I mean, come on. We have a feeling that there's more to it than that. So... What happened? Why is he back? There's obviously still a spark between them. So we're touching on a lot of fantasies and feelings that everyone can relate to in this too because lots of people have either been in this situation where they felt stuck in a place or they can imagine what that would be like. So it's a struggle that people can relate to. But more than that, we tie in this fantasy that so many people would want. Like, It's actually a few different fantasies tied into one. And it's not always the big fantasy, the overarching fantasy either. Sometimes it's the small little moments too. For example, she goes to leave, she goes to pay her tab, and he steps in to pay it for her. Oh, but then on top of that, he is this cool rock star coming back to his old town, so maybe the bartenders aren't even making him pay for his drinks. And by proxy, she doesn't have to pay for hers either. Either one of those is a great little nugget of a fantasy. It's the guy paying the tap for you, stepping in and buying your drinks, but then he doesn't even have to pay for drinks because he's a rock star. That's a fantasy, even though it's a small one that we're slipping in there. There are so many great moments like that that you can create. And then going back to the bigger ones, we have what is supposed to be an ordinary night or what even is shaping up to be a bad night. And then out of nowhere, something completely unexpected happens to change the whole course of it. This is such an important kind of fantasy to hit on because it's one that we all want to believe in. It's what we read books like this for. Like when we're having a boring day or a bad day, like we all want to believe that something could happen in an instant that would make it magical all of a sudden. And that's what happens the moment Noelle slides the flyer across the table. And in that one second, everything changes. So we love being reminded that that's possible. And then we tie in this rock star fantasy, not just any rock star, but one she knew and was involved with before he got famous. So it's a second chance and rock star all tied into one. And that brings up another key idea here. And this is a big one for me. Sometimes it's fun to write and read about characters who can do things we can't or won't. Like a character who says the clever thing we wished we could say at the perfect moment or who takes the risks that we're too scared to take. But it's also very cathartic and to me maybe even more fun to read and to write about the characters who are more like us. The more the characters are like us, the more fun the fantasy is because then we can imagine what it would be like for it to actually happen to us. I have a hard time imagining why a famous rock star would magically find himself in my small town. And even if he did, why he'd be interested in me. I'm just, I'm like too much of a realist. And that in itself could be a great setup for a story because then there are so many things to play with and set up to make it perfectly plausible for that to happen. 
But it's also a lot of fun and easy to imagine that I could have had a fling with someone who then went on to be famous. And if I was writing this story out and had more time, I would probably play that up even more. Like, what has our character's experience been like while Cash was going off and getting famous? Like, did she see him on TV? Did she hear him on the radio? You can imagine her thinking like, gosh, I can't believe I've slept with this guy. But also thinking like, that's obviously never going to happen again. But now here he is. And it just might. So it's a fantasy, but it's a believable one in the sense that we have these realistic points of connection where we can imagine it actually unfolding for us. Like we can put ourselves in those shoes. But then once it does unfold, how does she handle it? Is she able to just go right along with it? No, like she has some eternal conflict there, but she's also not perfect. She has these moments where we can imagine her being in a daze or in a stupor where it's like super obvious that she's feeling head over heels for this guy. There's a moment where she stumbles over a chair. Like we all want those down to earth moments because odds are if we find ourselves in a situation like that, we're not going to say and do all the perfect things. Like our emotions and our adrenaline's on overdrive, we're caught off guard, and we're human. So we stumble over our words or we stumble literally, like physically. And that just adds to the believability of the fantasy and how well we're able to immerse ourselves in it and imagine it happening for ourselves. So there's the cliche of the clumsy heroine in rom-coms and other romances, but Really, there's a reason that that became so popular and there's a way to do it that it's not so cliche. We just want our characters to be real and relatable. And we also kind of want to know that if this fantasy ever did start playing out in our lives, like we can be human and imperfect and it doesn't change the course of what's happening. Like it's still possible. So to review, here are some of the key elements that were weaved into this story that I've touched on today. We talked about world building with a purpose. So create a believable world complete with believable people that your reader can relate to. But make sure that every element of that serves a purpose. You have your main setup of the story and all the internal and external conflicts of your main characters that fit into that. So as you're building your world, keep all of that connected into this perfect little ecosystem where every part of your story really serves a purpose. You have feelings that everyone can relate to, like being stuck in a small town or dealing with something traumatic and heavy, like taking care of a sick parent. What's a big fear that comes up with being in a situation like that? Like there's all of the physical and mental and emotional stress, but we're also afraid of feeling alone and isolated in that. Like we're bogged down in it all alone. So bonus tip, another fantasy that we can fulfill later is to have cash help our heroine with that struggle in a big way so helping with her mom spending time with them taking care of her for once since most of her time is spent taking care of someone else that's something that we can throw in later on too she's imperfect and inhuman yes she's doing the right hard thing and staying here to care for her mom but it doesn't change the longings and desires that she has inside. And I'm not saying that those are imperfect by any means. But you know, she's a real woman 
with a real sex drive and she has that restlessness. Like she's not a martyr who's just blind to the fact that she still has those feelings. They still exist for her and she's not trying to convince herself that they don't and that's very human. At the same time, she's not perfect in the sense that she always says or does the right thing. Like she wants to be more coy then she's actually able to pull off at times. So she trips and she stumbles. She's real. And then last but not least, we're weaving all of these little things in along the way and leaving that trail for our readers so that they want to keep going. So out of all of that, if there are two main things that I tell you to take away and really focus on, it's this, the feelings and the fantasies. Like I always say that writing a good story doesn't have to be rocket science. You just think of a time when you felt a really big feeling, like any kind of feeling. It could be joy, sadness, grief, anxiety, anger, confusion, embarrassment, homesickness, guilty pleasure, nostalgia, and just take that feeling and bottle it up and put your character in a situation that makes them feel the same thing. Then think of a fantasy that you have. Is it the old boyfriend who's now a famous rock star sweeping in to rescue you from this boring small town life that you're stuck in? Is it your new billionaire boss hitting on you? Is it your childhood crush or your high school boyfriend or your hot ex or maybe a firefighter or a bear shifter? Like what's your fantasy? that you legitimately, genuinely have and feel, how can you bring those big feelings that you thought of a moment ago and tie them in with those fantasies? List those things out for yourself. And then you just go write your fucking heart out. Like that's how you write a good story, plain and simple. Like the story that helps someone feel their own feelings wins every time. That's the story that people want. You know, they always say, write what you know, but that doesn't always mean, okay, this is my life story. Let me take the specific events out of that and the specific people out of that and write that. Because for a lot of us, that's going to make for, you know, some pretty repetitive, boring, limited number of stories. And fact as it is, isn't always going to be you know, that interesting to people. It's not always that interesting for us to write either. And sometimes it can be really uncomfortable. When they say write what you know, the better way that I think we can look at that is to look at the essence of it. Like what feelings do we know? What fantasies do we know? And that is what we build off of. And the writing actually ends up being much better because we're writing about real feelings that we've experienced firsthand. We know exactly what those are. It's not that the person feeling them in the story is us. The main character could be completely different from us. They could even respond to that situation in a way that we wished we had but couldn't at the time. But ultimately, the feelings are the same. The fantasies that are being carried out are the same. And we're able to write about those in a really profound way because we have actually or are actually experiencing them firsthand. And that's how we connect with readers. And connecting with readers is what makes a good story. The other thing to think about there is that if we have felt it, if we've lived it, Someone else out there has felt it and lived through it too. 
So that is just another way that we connect to our readers. Okay, so without making this a two-hour long episode, I've tried to cram in as many valuable writing craft tips as possible, and I hope that you found these super useful. I'd love to hear what today's episode inspired for you, and most importantly, I want you to complete the writing prompt. What's the most interesting thing that can happen next? Does Cash say something to change her mind? Does he convince her to come back? What's he there for? Does he drop a bomb for like why he's there? Or does she keep walking no matter what he says? And then either way it goes, what happens next? At this point in the story, we would be at the end of our first chapter roundabout. So at that point, I would say that it'd be a good time to drop like a pretty big cliffhanger. I just wrote this story in like under an hour for today's episode. So I don't know where the rest of the story is going yet, but it would be great to drop in some kind of bomb about why Cash is back in town. Maybe he's a dad now. Maybe he got someone pregnant and now he's he's taking care of the kid and he's back in town or I don't know. Like what could just be something completely unexpected that the reader's not expecting, that our main character isn't expecting. And ideally, that's going to be something that is going to, in some way, force them to spend time together. Whatever it is should be something that's kind of forced him to be back here in town for a long enough period of time that something can play out between them, which is the rest of our book. So I'd love to hear your ideas and yeah, write it out and let me know what you came up with and I will see you back here next week. Well, that's all she wrote for today's episode of The Business of Romance. I hope you enjoyed this time of adding to your toolkit for how to turn your romance writing into a profitable business. If you want to continue your journey towards becoming a successful romance fiction queen, head on over to fictionqueen.com where you'll find tons of resources, courses, and freebies to help you build your empire. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it on social media and be sure to tag me so I can say thank you. And if you would be so kind, leave us a review on your 